When seasons turn and pumpkins burn, enter jester skeletons that dance, goblins that read gothic romance on a stage werewolves maraud as an audience of vampires applaud such spooky sights to be seen welcome to halloween hello and welcome to scintillating stories in this show we read short stories by a variety of authors welcome to our final halloween episode Today we are following a twisted fairy tale road. In addition, we are marking the death of the wonderful Angela Lansbury by reading a story from The Bloody Chamber. This collection was adapted into The Company of Wolves in 1984, where she played the role of Granny. Wolf Alice by Angela Carter Could this ragged girl with brindled lugs have spoken like we do, she would have called herself a wolf. But she cannot speak, although she howls because she is lonely. Yet howl is not the right word for it, since she is young enough to make the noise that pups do, bubbling, delicious, like that of a panful of fat on the fire. Sometimes the sharp ears of her foster kindred hear her across the irreparable gulf of absence. They answer her from faraway pine forests and the bald mountain rim. Their counterpoint crosses and crisscrosses the night sky. They are trying to talk to her, but they cannot do so because she does not understand their language, even if she knows how to use it, for she is not a wolf herself although suckled by wolves. Her panting tongue hangs out, her red lips are thick and fresh, her legs are long, lean and muscular. Her elbows, hands and knees are thickly calloused because she always runs on all fours. She never walks, she trots or gallops. Her pace is not our pace. Two legs looks, four legs sniffs, her long nose is always a-quivering, sifting every scent it meets. With this useful tool, she lengthily investigates everything she glimpses. She can net so much more of the world than we can through the fine, hairy, sensitive filters of her nostrils, that her poor eyesight does not trouble her. Her nose is sharper by night than our eyes are by day, so it is the night she prefers when the cool, reflected light of the moon does not make her eyes smart and draws out the various fragrances from the woodland where she wanders when she can. But the wolves keep well away from the peasants' shotguns now, and she will no longer find them there. Wide shoulders, long arms, and she sleeps succinctly curled into a ball as if she were cradling her spine in her tail. Nothing about her is human, except that she is not a wolf. It is as if the fur she thought she wore had melted into her skin and become part of it, although it does not exist. Like the wild beasts, she lives without a future. She inhabits only the present tense, a fugue of the continuous, a world of sensual immediacy, as without hope as it is without despair. 
When they found her in the wolf's den beside the bullet-ridden corpse of her foster mother, she was no more than a little brown scrap, so snarled in her own brown hair they did not at first think that she was a child, but a cub. She snapped at her would-be saviours with her spiky canines until they tied her up by force. She spent the first days amongst us, crouched stock-still, staring at the whitewashed wall of her cell in the convent to which they took her. The nuns poured water over her, poking her with sticks to rouse her. Then she might snatch bread from their hands and race with it into a corner to mumble it with her back towards them. It was a great day among the novices when she learned to sit up on her hind legs and beg for a crust. They found that if she were treated with a little kindness, she was not intractable. She learned to recognise her own dish, then to drink from a cup. They found that she could quite easily be taught a few simple tricks, but she did not feel the cold, and it took a long time to wheedle a shift over her head to cover up her bold nakedness. Yet she always seemed wild, impatient of restraint, capricious of temper. When the Mother Superior tried to teach her to give thanks for her recovery from the wolves, she arched her back, pawed the floor, retreated to a far corner of the chapel, crouched, trembled, urinated, defecated, reverted entirely, it would seem, to her natural state. Therefore, without a qualm, this nine days' wonder and continuing embarrassment of a child was delivered over to the bereft and unsanctified household of the Duke. Deposited at the castle, she huffed and snuffled and smelled only a reek of meat, not the least whiff of sulphur nor of familiarity. She settled down on her hunkers with that dog sigh that is only the expulsion of breath and does not mean either relief or resignation. The Duke is sear as old paper. His dry skin rustles against the bedsheets as he throws them back to thrust out his thin legs, scabbed with old scars where thorns score his pelt. He lives in a gloomy mansion, all alone, but for this child, who has his little in common with the rest of us as he does. His bedroom is painted terracotta, rusted with a wash of pain, like the interior of an Iberian butcher's shop. But for himself, nothing can hurt him since he ceased to cast an image in the mirror. He sleeps in an antlered bed of dull black-wrought iron until the moon, the governess of transformation and overseer of somnambulists, pokes an imperative finger through the narrow window and strikes his face. Then his eyes start open. At night, those huge, inconsolable, rapacious eyes of his are eaten up by swollen, gleaming pupil. His eyes see only appetite. These eyes open to devour the world, in which he sees nowhere a reflection of himself. He passed through the mirror, and now henceforward lives as if upon the other side of things. Spilt glistering milk of moonlight on the frost-crisp grass. On such a night, in moony, metamorphic weather, they say you might easily find him, if you have been foolish enough to venture out late, scuttling along by the churchyard wall with half a juicy torso slung across his back. The white light scours the fields and scours them again until everything gleams, 
and he will leave paw prints in the hoar frost when he runs howling around the graves at night in his lupine fiestas. By the red early hour of midwinter sunset, all the doors are barred for miles. The cows low fretfully in the byre when he goes by. The whimpering dogs sink their noses into their paws. He carries on his frail shoulders a weird burden of fear. He is cast in the role of the corpse-eater, the body-snatcher who invades the last privacies of the dead. He is white as leprosy, with scrabbling fingernails, and nothing deters him. If you stuff a corpse with garlic, why, he only slavers at the treat. Cadaver Provençal. He will use the holy cross as a scratching post and crouch above the font to thirstily lap up holy water. She sleeps in the soft, warm ashes of the hearth. Beds are traps. She will not stay in one. She can perform a few small tasks to which the nuns trained her. She sweeps up the hairs, vertebrae and phalanges that litter his room into a dustpan. She makes up his bed at sunset when he leaves it, and the grey beasts outside howl, as if they know his transformation is their parody, unkind to their prey. To their own, they are tender. Had the duke been a wolf, they would have angrily expelled him from the pack. He would have had to lollop along, miles behind them, creeping in submission on his belly up to the kill only after they had eaten and were sleeping to gnaw the well-chewed bones and chew the hide. Yet, suckled as she was by wolves on the high uplands where her mother bore and left her, only his kitchen-maid, who is not wolf or woman, knows no better than to do his chores for him. She grew up with wild beasts. If you could transport her in her filth, rags and feral disorder to the Eden of our first beginnings where Eve and grunting Adam squat on a daisy bank, picking the lice from one another's pelts, then she might prove to be the wise child who leads them all, and her silence and her howling a language as authentic as any language of nature. In a world of talking beasts and flowers, she would be the bud of flesh in the kind lion's mouth. But how can the bitten apple flesh out its scar again? Mutism is her lot, though now and then she will emit an involuntary rustle of sound, as if the unused cords of her throat were a wind harp that moved with the random impulses of the air. Familiar desecrations in the village graveyard. The coffin had been ripped open with the abandon with which a child unwraps a gift on Christmas morning, and, of its contents, not a trace could be found but for a rag of the burial veil in which the corpse had been wrapped, that was caught fluttering in the brambles at the churchyard gate, so they knew which way he had taken it, towards his gloomy castle. In the lapse of time, the trance of being of that exiled place this girl grew amongst things she could neither name nor perceive. How did she think? How did she feel? This perennial stranger with her furred thoughts and her primal sentience that existed in a flux of shifting impressions, there are no words to describe the way she negotiated the abyss between her dreams, those wakings strange as her sleeping. The wolves had tended her because they knew she was an imperfect wolf, 
We secluded her in animal privacy out of fear of her imperfection, because it showed us what we might have been. And so time passed, although she scarcely knew it. Then she began to bleed. Her first blood bewildered her. She did not know what it meant, and the first stirrings of surmise that ever she felt were directed towards its possible cause. The moon had been shining into the kitchen when she woke, and it seemed to her that a wolf who perhaps was fond of her, as wolves were, and who lived, perhaps, in the moon, must have nibbled her while she was sleeping. The shape of this theory was blurred, yet out of it there took root a kind of wild reasoning, as it might have from a seed dropped in her brain off the foot of a flying bird. The flow continued for a few days, which seemed to her an endless time. She had as yet no direct notion of past, or future, or of duration, only of a dimensionless immediate moment. At night she prowled the empty house, looking for rags to sop up the blood. She had learned a little elementary hygiene in the convent, enough to know how to bury her excrement and cleanse herself, although the nuns had not the means to inform her how it should be. It was not fastidiousness, but shame that made her do so. She found towels, sheets, and pillowcases in closets that had not been opened since the Duke came shrieking into the world with all his teeth to bite his mother's nipple off and weep. She found once-worn ball dresses in cobwebbed wardrobes and heaped in the corner of his bloody chamber, shrouds, nightdresses, and burial clothes that had wrapped items on the Duke's menus. She tore strips of the most absorbent fabrics to clumsily diaper herself. In the course of these prowlings, she bumped against that mirror over whose surface the duke passed like a wind on ice. First, she tried to nuzzle her reflection. Then, nosing it industriously, she soon realised it gave out no smell. She bruised her muzzle on the cold glass and broke her claws trying to tussle with this stranger. She saw, with irritation, then amusement, how it mimicked every gesture of hers— when she raised her forepaw to scratch herself or dragged her bum along the dusty carpet to rid herself of a slight discomfort in her hindquarters. She rubbed her head against her reflected face to show that she felt friendly towards it and felt a cold, solid, immovable surface between herself and she, some kind, possibly, of invisible cage. In spite of this barrier, she was lonely enough to ask this creature to try and play with her, baring her teeth and grinning, at once she received a reciprocal invitation. She rejoiced. She began to whirl round on herself, yapping exultantly. But when she retreated from the mirror, she halted in the midst of her ecstasy, puzzled to see how her new friend grew less in size. The moonlight spilled into the Duke's motionless bedroom from behind a cloud, and she saw how pale this wolf, not wolf, who played with her was. The moon and mirrors have this much in common. You cannot see behind them. Moonlit and white, Wolf Alice looked at herself in the mirror and wondered whether there she saw the beast who came to bite her in the night. Then her sensitive ears pricked at the sound of a step in the hall. Trotting at once back to her kitchen, she encountered the duke with the leg of a man over his shoulder. Her toenails clicked against the stairs as she padded incuriously past. 
she, the serene, involuble one in her absolute and verminous innocence. Soon the flow ceased. She forgot it. The moon vanished, but, little by little, reappeared. When it again visited her kitchen at full strength, Wolf Alice was surprised into bleeding again, and so it went on with a punctuality that transformed her vague grip on time. She learned to expect these bleedings, to prepare her rags against them, and afterwards neatly bury the dirtied things. Sequence asserted itself with custom, and then she understood the circumambulatory principle of the clock perfectly. Even if all clocks were banished from the den where she and the duke inhabited their separate solitudes, so that you might say she discovered the very action of time by means of this returning cycle. When she curled up amongst the cinders, the colour, temperature and warmth of them brought her foster mother's belly out of the past and printed it on her flesh. Her first conscious memory, painful as the first time the nuns combed her hair, she howled a little, in a firmer, deepening trajectory to obtain the inscrutable consolation of the wolves' response. For now the world around her was assuming form. She perceived an essential difference between herself and her surroundings that, you might say, she could not put her finger on. Only the trees and grass of the meadows outside no longer seemed the emanation of her questing nose and erect ears, and yet sufficient to herself, but a kind of backdrop for her that waited for her arrivals to give it meaning. She saw herself upon it, and her eyes, with their sombre clarity, took on a veiled, introspective look. She would spend hours examining the new skin that had been born, it seemed to her, of her bleeding. The damned duke haunts the graveyard. He believes himself to be both less and more than human, as if his obscene difference were a sign of grace. During the day he sleeps, his mirror faithfully reflects his bed, but never the meagre shape within the disordered covers. Sometimes, on those white nights, when she was left alone in the house, she dragged out his grandmother's ball dress and rolled on suave velvet and a brace of lace, because to do so delighted her. Her intimate in the mirror wound the old clothes around herself, wrinkling its nose in delight at the ancient yet still potent sense of musk and civet that woke up the sleeves and bodices. This habitual, at last, boring fidelity to her very movement finally woke her up to the regretful possibility that her companion was, in fact, no more than a particularly ingenious variety of the shadow she cast on sunlit grass. Had not she and the rest of the litter tussled and romped with their shadows long ago? She poked her agile nose around the back of the mirror. She found only dust, a spider stuck in his web, and a heap of rags. A little moisture leaked from the corners of her eyes, yet her relation with the mirror was now far more intimate, since she knew she saw herself within it. She poured and tumbled the dress the duke had tucked away behind the mirror for a while. The dust was soon shaken out of it. She experimentally inserted her front legs in the sleeves. Although the dress was torn and crumpled, it was so white and of such a sinuous texture that she thought, before she put it on, she must thoroughly wash off her coat of ashes in the water from the pump in the yard, which she knew how to manipulate with her cunning forepaws. 
In the mirror, she saw how this white dress made her shine. Although she could not run so fast on two legs in petticoats, she trotted out in her new dress to investigate the odorous October hedgerows, like a debutant from the castle, delighted with herself, but still, now and then, singing to the wolves with a kind of wistful triumph, because now she knew how to wear clothes and had put on the visible sign of her difference from them. Her footprints on damp earth are beautiful and menacing as those Man Friday left. The young husband of the dead bride spent a long time planning his revenge. He filled the church with an arsenal of bells, books and candles, a battery of silver bullets. They brought a ten-gallon tub of holy water in a wagon from the city, where it had been blessed by the archbishop himself to drown the duke if the bullets bounced off him. They gathered in the church to chant a litany and wait for the one who would visit the first deaths of winter. She goes out at night more often now. The landscape assembles itself about her. She informs it with her presence. She is its significance. It seemed to her the congregation in the church was ineffectually attempting to imitate the wolves' chorus. She lent them the assistance of her own educated voice for a while, rocking contemplatively on her haunches by the graveyard gate. Then her nostrils twitched to catch the rank stench of the dead that told her her cohabitor was at hand. Raising her head, who did her new keen eyes spy but the Lord of Cobweb Castle, intent on performing his cannibal rituals? And if her nostrils flare suspiciously at the choking reek of incense, and his do not, that is because she is far more sentient than he. She will therefore run, run when she hears the crack of bullets, because they killed her foster mother. So, with the selfsame lilting lope, drenched with holy water, will he run too, until the young widower fires the silver bullet that bites his shoulder and drags off half his fictive pelt, so that he must rise up like any common forked biped and limp distressfully on as best he may. When they saw the white bride leap out of the tombstones and scamper off towards the castle, with the werewolf stumbling after, the peasants thought the duke's dearest victim had come back to take matters into her own hands. They ran screaming from the presence of a ghostly vengeance on him. Poor, wounded thing, locked half and half between such strange states, an abortive transformation, an incomplete mystery, now lies writhing on his black bed in the room like a Mycenaean tomb, howls like a wolf with his foot in a trap or a woman in labour, and bleeds. First she was fearful when she heard the sound of pain in case it hurt her as it had done before. She prowled round the bed, growling, snuffling at his wound that does not smell like her wound. Then she was pitiful as her gaunt grey mother, she leapt upon his bed to lick, without hesitation, without disgust, with a quick, tender gravity, the blood and dirt from his cheek and forehead. The lucidity of the moonlit mirror propped against the red wall, the rational glass, the master of the visible, impartially recorded the crooning girl. As she continued her ministrations, this glass, with infinite slowness, yielded to the reflexive strength of its own material construction. Little by little, there appeared within it, like the image on photographic paper that emerges first a formless web of tracery, 
the prey caught in its own fishing net, then a firmer, yet still shadowed outline until, at last, as vivid as real life itself, as if brought into being by her soft, gentle tongue, finally the face of the Duke. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to suggest or submit a short story or a subject you'd like us to cover, then contact us through our Facebook page or Twitter and subscribe if you would like to hear more. This has been a Yorick Radio production. 